Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Built in Texas series. Yes, yes, Built in Texas. Episode number one, baby, of Built in Texas. But uh, if you have been following along, I'm kind of shining a light on amazing founders and visionaries and CEOs just really changing uh, the world as we know it. With me on the line is the CEO of Triam Vera, Paul Laminus. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Matt. Appreciate being here. So, Paul, you've got a very interesting back, uh, background, and uh, Triumvir is doing some incredible things in uh, in the cancer uh, area, and we're going to get into all of that. But for our viewers around the world, uh, Paul, who haven't heard about you or the amazing work that you and your team are doing, uh, why don't you give us a bit about the backstory, uh, kick us off, uh, what do we need to know? So I'm originally a uh, transplanted Dutchman. So I did my medical and, and science training back in Holland. I moved to the U.S. in 1992 when I was working for a Dutch pharma company. They asked me to become medical director for the U.S. business. So I moved with my family to New Jersey initially, where I uh, worked for about six, seven years, um, then moved down to Texas to join a biotech company. Um, and from there, I was there for about four years, and I moved up to Massachusetts, where I worked seven years at, at the large biotech company. Um, and from there, I went back to Texas and, uh, in fact, uh, moved first to Houston, from Houston to Austin, to become CEO, president CEO of my previous company, which was also a startup here out of Austin. Um, and that went really well, um, you know. Raised a lot of money, brought the company public on NASDAQ, which was of you know interesting experience as well. Unfortunately, we had toxicity in our first clinical trial that sometimes happens. And so we decided to uh, to stop the study. We had to stop the study. And then uh, from there, we then decided to merge and in reverse merger, so to say, with a company out of Cambridge, Massachusetts. And we closed the doors in August of 17. Then I was said you know, I was consulting for a few companies. As part of that, I was urged to go to Toronto and meet the co-founders of Tramvera. Um, one was uh, Professor Jonathan Bremson, who is a uh, you know T cell biology expert in, in in the space, and Brian Bloom, the CEO of Bloomberg, an investment advisory firm out of Toronto. So um, based on the story, what I knew, the data that I read, I mean the, the papers, I was really intrigued by the opportunity to build a company, the team around it. So I joined January 1st, 2018 as president CEO. At that time, there were two scientists in uh, Professor Bramson's lab who were employees. I was employee number three. And right now we have 73 people, um, roughly 60, 40% between the U.S. and Canada, which is exciting. So it's a great team. Um, and the role of the CEO is very simple. You have to build a team and raise the money. That's it. So um yeah, so that's how, you know, it's a quick overview of how I got to uh, where I am right now. Thank you for that, Paul. Um, so let's get into uh, what you're doing at uh, Triumvira, which is truly remarkable from my experience. Um, but I'd love uh, for you just to paint a picture of like the problem here. So this uh, is really about uh, cancer treatment. And we understand that a lot of cancers don't have adequate therapies. But um, I'd love it if you would take the reins from me, Paul, and just from an expert perspective point of view like what's the problem here that you guys are solving sure so um i would say almost about a year 100 years ago um some scientists were thinking about could we use a patient's own immune system to target their own cancers and there were some dabs and and also obviously some you know trial and error literally and it turned out to be more errors than than success stories so the, you know, that idea was almost abandoned 
till about you know 15 years ago when some key scientists at uh, at MD Anderson and some other institutions found out that they can actually basically you know make T cells which is part of your you know white blood cell uh, population in your body could basically make them identify find and 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 kill your own tumor cells so that basically became what we call T cell therapy and T cell therapy has literally taken off as one of the most exciting new fields in the cancer therapy arena. We all know, look, you can take um, chemotherapy to try to kill a lot of cancer cells, um, and it does kill a lot of cancer cells, but it comes at a horrible cost because the side effects are just, you know, horrendous. And, uh, you know, you're losing hair, I mean, losing weight. I mean, it's just a real tough experience to go through. So people try to find better mousetrap to how to to treat cancer. And and this immunotherapy, as they call it, is really the next wave and the wave of the future. Several products have been approved, um, especially for the treatment of, of what you call blood cancer. So lymphomas and leukemias and multiple myeloma and another blood cancer, very effectively with high success rates and a very and an, an acceptable risk profile, although it's not without risk still, um, and we are really in the forefront of developing this same kind of T-cell therapy, but then for solid tumors, whether it be pancreatic or lung or ovarian or golon and, you know, gastric cancer, all very high uh, cancer with high unmet medical needs because we all have friends and family who are dealing with these things. And unfortunately, we lost quite a few people because they're still very deadly um, cancers. And so it's an exciting you look, and and what is more exciting than wake up in the morning, jump out of bed, go to work to try to uh, you know find a way to treat these hor- horrific cancer types? Mm. Yeah, um, it's a, and it's a difficult thing to do. Um, I would I would imagine. I mean, anything in this in this particular space is, is pretty hardcore. Um, so I mean, how would you ca- how big is this problem? If you were to put like a, a dollar value on the opportunity that you guys are going after, what would you where would you put that roughly? Well, I think that you know at the end of the day, I mean, currently, I know if you look at the total cost of of cancer therapy in the US, you're talking about almost eighty billion dollars. I mean, it's massive. Um, you know, and it's not purely the direct cost of the therapy. It's also associated costs. I mean, the scans and all the the whole teams that you know that are rounding a cancer patient nowadays. It all is extremely expensive. So, if we are able to have something that is effective, is very safe, it's easy to take. You can minimize hospital costs. You can minimize you know the cost of the therapy alone, the total cost of therapy, not just purely the product or the drug. But also the all the all that comes around it, then we can have a massive impact on on cancer care and also the cost of cancer care, and that would be you know a huge benefit, obviously. You know. Mm-hmm. So how does it work? Um, how does this? So I can tell you it works. So basically, what it means is, so you take a cancer patient, you take blood from a cancer patient, then you out of that blood, you send it up to the lab. In the lab, you basically isolate those T cells or or part of your white blood cells. And what you do then is you basically genetically engineer those cells to express a certain protein on the surface of these cells. So they start making that protein, the cells themselves, they express it on the surface of these T cells. Then you expand them in the lab until you have billions of those cells. And then you send it back to the site where the patient gets his own cells reinfused into his own body. 
But now those cells identify and recognize and, and identify and kill their own cancer cells. This is the ultimate personalized medicine, if you want to put it like this. It's, you know, now you're still looking at specific targets. So for, as an example, our key program is focused on HER2, which is a very well-known target, especially in breast cancer and gastric cancer. Um, you know, Herceptin was approved about 25 years ago as a um, cancer therapy targeting HER2 specifically on breast cancer. That was then expanded into gastric cancer. Um, and that product has been, Herceptin has been very successful. But now there are newer products on the market that we do even a better job of targeting that HER2 target that we have identified. So, uh, Paul, what would you say um, are some of the immediate challenges that you and your team need to overcome in order to secure this opportunity? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Well, the key thing is you have to actually, the biggest challenge is, look, product development or development in general takes a long time, right? I mean, we've been spoiled now a bit with the COVID-19 coronavirus crisis that we got these viruses made and of these NDE vaccines made about four months. Well, that's really exceptional. I mean, it normally takes about 14 years to develop a product. So it takes a lot of initially lab studies or in vitro, um, you know, with cell cultures, then you go into animals, you'd have to do a lot of animal studies before you finally, by the FDA, allows you to start your first clinical trial. Then you have to do several clinical trials to ultimately get to a large enough data set, robust data set that would allow the FDA to say, okay, now you have shown your product is safe and effective, and now we allow you to get onto the market with the product. So if, if people look at a commercial TV, say for Keytruda as an example, which is for advanced lung cancer. That product was initially conceived, uh, the idea was conceived about 20, 25 years ago. Um, and now, of course, it's a very well-known lung, uh, you know, treatment for non-small cell lung cancer, but it takes a long time and it takes about $2 billion to develop a product from the lab all the way up to bring it onto the market. So it's a long time. Hmm. And you um, need to recoup because all the other thing is the patent, right? What is your ownership, right, on, on that technology? And to what extent you know, do you have, you know, have about 20 years protection? So, you know, by the time, if you take 15 years out of this to develop it, you only have about five years left to recoup all the investments that you made in that technology and to make it to that point. 
So, uh, Paul, just quickly around the, around the solution. So what you were describing was like essentially how does uh, cell therapy work? So you take the blood, you extract the T lymphocyte, send to the lab, genetically re-engineer it. You multiply that into you know, 2 billion cells. You ship that back to the clinic and you reinfuse that back into the patient. Right. So that sounds like super innovative and amazing. Question though, um, when it comes to patient response, if we know universally, if we can accept that the university true premise that cancer is really smart, it keeps mutating, right. um, how true is it to say that what you're really enabling is a unique patient-centric response from the body uh, to combat this mutating uh, cancer? Well, look, it all comes back to the presence of that target. In our case, HER2, as I mentioned earlier, uh, on, 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 the, on the surface of these cancer cells, right? So, not first off, not all these cancer cells will express that same target, one. So, there is what you call heterogeneity within the tumor itself, right? Some cells may express it a lot, others may a little bit, and others may not express it at all. So, you may be very much, you know, dealt a situation where you can really kill a lot of cancer cells, but at the end of the day, there are still enough other cancer cells left, right, to progress. We should not forget, Matt, that if you have, if you can see a questionable nodule on a, say, on an, on an x-ray, right, you say, okay, our, our human eye can discern about one millimeters, right, in diameter, can a little bitty dot, right? A one millimeter cubic cancer has 1 billion cancer cells. So if you kill 50% of those, you have killed 500 million cancer cells, but there's still 500 million left who can still outgrow again or can spread to the body. So it's, you know, cancer, I mean, curing cancer has always been people's idea with the whole cancer cure initiative from, you know, President Nixon back in 1971. Everybody wants to do it, but curing cancer is tough. And there's de definitely differences between different types of cancers. So right now, for instance, with pediatric cancer, cancers in kids, I think you can save about 80% of the kids nowadays, which is fantastic, right? Um, and depending on some cancer types, you know, for instance, take testicular cancer, where guys basically survive almost 100%, versus pancreatic cancer, where after five years, you have a survival rate of about 5%. You know, it's really, really very, it's a very difficult cancer to, to treat. So, you know, you know, what has changed, Matt, especially, let's take an example, breast cancer. We used to call it, we call it breast cancer because it was cancer in the breast, right? Now, by the way, um, guys can also get breast cancer, right? It's very rare, but it's not just purely women. Anyway, it's a hundred to one ratio. But anyway, nowadays, an oncologist can tell a breast cancer patient you have this specific type of breast cancer because we do all kinds of analysis. We take a biopsies, we have diagnosis of breast cancer, we do all kinds of genetic analyses and say, you have this specific one, which means is I'm not going to try to treat you with the following seven or eight or, or 10 therapies because they're not going to do anything for your type of breast cancer. So I'm saving you, you know, the horrific side effects of chemo and other stuff because I can do both of the way your genetic makeup of your cancer type. I will try to treat you with this because this may have a very good chance of, you know, of getting your tumor under control. So, so there has been a lot of progress in the last 15 to 20 years in that, in that respect. Mm -hmm. We used to throw chemo on everything just to try to stop the growth, right? 
So, mm. and that's still look more than 50% of all cancer patients in the world are treated with these kind of chemotherapy agents in an attempt just to stop the growth of the tumor, but it comes at a horrific cost. The quality of life is really, really miserable. Yeah. If I may, Paul, I, I, uh, I, funnily enough, a friend of mine, I used to live with her, um, when I was back home and, um, her husband was diagnosed with cancer from when he was 16. His name's Josh Reynolds. Um, and it's so weird, like I'm having this conversation with you today because he passed away today. Oh, sorry to hear that. Um, sorry to hear that. No, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I get, I get it. Um, and the story with him was, and like, it's interesting to talk about the innovation and the product, but you, you got to try and like map this back to like a, a patient. Cause right. I think it starts to become real for everyone. Um, and so, uh, you know, he, he was diagnosed when he was very young and he's been trying to manage his uh, disease mm. ever since, um, from having like the whole thing cut out to, you know, losing like whole parts of his intestine to, um, to chemo, like he like really did it all. Um, and unfortunately he succumbed and I, and I think about Josh now today specifically, and I think about the journey that he went mm. on because there wasn't a viable alternative. You know what I mean? Like they, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I fully appreciate that. Um, and no, so it's right. There is the need for constant innovation, constant advancement of the science and understanding of cancer and how to best to control it, to combat it. I mean, it is, and it's tough because George, no doubt went to years of different types of therapies, right. And went to, you know, had no doubt undergo some, you know, a lot of procedures, have to deal with the side effects to poor quality of life, you know, being tired and, and nauseated and, you know, you name it, all the stuff that comes with some of these therapies. Mm. Because the hope is still there, you know, to try, we're going to beat this disease, right? But that that's actually where I was going to go, Paul, was like, what what is what is the hope here? Because is this about giving, you know, people who are suffering with cancer hope? Like, this is actually something different to mm-hmm. the, you know, let's just say tried and tested everybody knows about it we all know that this side effects lose your hair but then you're probably not going to make it you know Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like if you don't yeah yeah. so look ultimately i think where the direction that has been taken in cancer treatment and and research over the last say five to ten years is can we make cancer into a chronic disease with a good quality of life so you can control the outgrowth of the cancer the spread of cancer but still give patients a great quality of life, right? I mean, so, and look, it all depends on, A, what stage are patients being diagnosed? One, right? So doing diagnostics tests, I mean, it's like simple. I mean, you know, if you turn 50, you know, you can have a colonoscopy done to see if you have a higher risk of colon cancer. Well, people say, well, it's an invasive procedure. Guys, I mean, it is just a colonoscopy. Okay, you, you, you have to empty out your bowel sitting on the toilet one night, but after that, you get a clean bill of health for 10 years and you don't have to come back in 10 years for that. Colon cancer is the third biggest cancer type, you know, in the world, right? It kills so many people. So if you can do preventative stuff, that would be awesome. You know, it's the same with Gardasil for, for, you know, for cervical cancer as an example. As another, if we can protect girls from getting that in the first place, why would you not do that? Mm. So, um, so I think that I, and some cancers are notorious for being discovered late. Ovarian cancer, perfect example. Um, you know, so it all depends on you know people making sure that you go and and go and see your doctors. And look, women go to the OBGYNs twice a year as the primary care physician. 
the average guy goes to a doctor once every five years, which I think is utterly ridiculous. Mm. And that's something that we need to change. That's an educational thing about, you know, you can maintain longer health if you do do your regular checkups. Agree. Agree. Especially when you're over 40. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> so, Paul, when you took over uh, back in uh, 2015, sorry, 2018, uh, there were two employees. You guys are now 70 employees. I'm curious to uh, to unpack with you, like, where are you guys in terms of clinical trials? Um, and uh, what's the kind of immediate feedback that you're getting from real people? Yeah. So we started the trial. We are in what you call phase one, which is the earliest clinical trial uh, phase. And you go from phase one to phase two to phase three. And ultimately, phase three trials or a larger phase two trial can lead to an FDA approval. So we're in the early stages. We started the study last year. Um, the biggest challenge in running cancer trials, and it's really important, Matt, is only two to five percent of all cancer patients take part in clinical trials. And, you know, unfortunately, that has to do with also, you know, that patients don't get adequate information either from the current prescribing or or treating physician about the opportunity to participate in clinical trials. Once they're in a clinical trial, then they know a bit the system and, you know, perhaps their cancer might progress and they go online. There is a clinicaltrials.gov, which is a, a government-run website that shows all the cancer trials and you can type in and you can do searches. And people then are really trying to find, you know, what next trial can I participate in, right? But unfortunately, only 2 to 5% takes part in clinical trials, which is a really, really low number given, you know, the high incidence of cancer, which is really a pity. Um, so that's an educational thing. Um, you know, I often feel that as a pharma and biotech industry, um, we need to do better in, as informing patients about the existence of clinical trials and how do you, it, again, it's an educational thing. I mean, what is cancer? How can you get cancer? What kind of cancer do you have? I, you know, if God forbid you're being diagnosed, I mean, how can you deal with this in the best way? So, um, and of course, you have a lot of cancer societies from American to so many, you know, subcategories of, of societies and foundations that provide a lot of very useful information. You know, it started with WebMD type thing, and suddenly everybody knows what the kind of therapy they like to be treated with. But um, so I think education is really critical. Um what we hear are our oncologists in the study. We have right now five sites in the U.S., no, four U.S., one in Canada participating in the study. So from Boston to Houston to Toronto to Chicago, one in New Jersey. And these, what you call principal investigators, these oncologists, right, are extremely excited about the study because there's very few cell therapy studies yet in solid tumors. Like we're targeting, of course, HER2, which we're targeting breast, colon, gastric, um, you know, gastroesophageal junction, um, there's, you know, there's, you know, the pancreatic lung. There's so many tumors that overexpress that HER2 target that we're talking about. So uh, we're getting patients in. Now, also, we need to, the role of the FDA is very important this as well, right? So your phase one is really to show safety. Is it safe? So you do what you call dose escalation. So you start with a really low dose, and then you go up, you know, and up and higher until you have reached what you call the maximum tolerated dose or what you call the recommended dose for phase two for the next step. So it's a long process. FDA wants you to be really slow 
when you go to this dose escalation step, because they're concerned, you know, God forbid, you don't want to have some serious toxicities in, in patients, right? It's different than in animals, right? We we have treated and cured so many animals, it's ridiculous. But mice is something different than humans, right? So so I think that they want you to be slow and steady and, and before you go up. And once you have that recommended phase two dose, you don't have some of these slow down restrictions and suddenly you can, you know, we're adding five more sites by, you know, two to two mm. the sites that I just mentioned, because we think we're going to have so many patients that are interested in oncology who want to refer us to take part of that clinical trial. Mm. Just uh, while you were talking, Paul, I actually went to uh, clinicaltrials.gov and I put in their search uh, cancer. Uh, and then I put in there, uh, we even went further, went into like recruiting. Um, there's 18,597 studies. Yeah, it's astonishing. Like, it's like astonishing. now, like yeah, it's to, astonishing. today. Yes, it's correct. amazing. It's unbelievable. I know. It's really no, amazing. And it's, and it's, it's not just great for for patients who do have cancer and try to find a clinical trial, but also for general. I mean, look, unfortunately, we all know family members or relatives that are facing this disease or we have lost them to disease, like you mentioned, George, you know, today. Mm. Um, But it's a general education thing, right? Stuff can happen in life, including cancer can happen, right? So it's great to know what the resources are, where you can go and find information. Mm. Um, so I think clinicaltrials.gov is a perfect because it lists you if you have a specific cancer type, you can search for that, and then it gives you different studies. And if you click on the study, you can also see where the study is being run. You know what sites are, which is one closest to you, and then you can also talk to your oncologist about, hey, I really like to participate, you know, in that study. Um, and I'm assuming it's free. Yes. So you know you're you basically. Most of the medical care is paid for by the sponsor sponsoring, by the company sponsoring the study, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so question uh, from, because you touched on it, preventative. How preventative can one be in this battle? Well, look, you know, I, I think that for, look, it's very simple. I mean, you know, if, if you want to avoid, you know, the you know, biggest chance of avoiding lung cancer by not smoking. You know, that's a preventative action, right? You can do vaccination, like I said, or like, uh, you know, for uh, for girls getting cervical cancer, for boys getting penile cancer. I mean, these things you can avoid by giving, you know, vaccines, right? So when the teenagers and, you know, um, you know, but also then stay with the course. For instance, you know, one of these products, it's a three-time injection, I think, the vaccine. So pay, you know, somebody goes one time, it doesn't go for two and three. Well, then you missed out, right? I mean, and and again, you know, it's very difficult for if you're a teenager, if you're 14 years old, to think about something that might happen to you when you're 44, right? I mean, that's not how teenagers' minds work. I mean, they're really focused on the here and now, right? I mean, and then your friends and you know, your your circle of friends and family. Uh, but it's important. It's also important the role the parents play in that, right? Because again, if you can avoid things, you know, why not, right? Um, you know, as I said, regular health checkups. I mean, you know, have your annual physical, uh, whether you're, you know, women go to OBGYN or physicians go to an internal medicine or a family doctor. I mean, I think it's really important that you um, build up some kind of a um, internal clock, but system that checks up and see if there's anything different. I mean, people know about high blood pressure. People know about, look, my if my lipids levels are not good, I might have a chance of a heart attack. Well, the same thing. If you're if certain things are off, 
you might be, you know, prone or more, you know, to to develop a cancer type. And I think if you can avoid that, why not? Mm. Yeah, and I think also paying attention to the things that are really affecting uh, us. Also, I think there's a lot of talk about like COVID and stuff. And I actually pulled up the latest stats just to share with everybody. So, so people, there's about 10 million people die every year from uh, cancer around the world. Um, and then to date, over the last two years, COVID's uh, six and a half million deaths. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that puts this, you know, this challenge really into perspective, perspective. doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. You know, so, and I think that look, it's a perfect example. I mean, it, it's also related to age. It's related to nutrition. It's really critical as well. You know, you have to try to find a, a well-balanced diet. Uh, we all know the things that are not good for you because it may make you gain weight, but also the same things, not just gain weight, but also increase your risk of cancer, whether it's stomach cancer or colon cancer. Or So it is a, you know, um, you know, obviously, we want people to be happy in their lives and you don't want to be you know, worrying about, about developing cancer each and every day. That's not the purpose. The purpose more is to minimize it. And is you can do some very effective things to getting screened every year without making it into a huge onerous type of exercise either. Mm. So I want to change gears with you, Paul, sure. um, and talk about um, uh, funding medtech or biotech. Um, yeah. I spoke to, funnily enough, I spoke to an investor um on towards the end of last week thursday friday and i said to him you know because i'm talking to all these startups they need most of them need money you know what's your kind of investment preference you know where you at um and i said you know and i actually spoke to him about texas and how interesting as an observation it is for me to be talking to uh you know startups who are specifically solving biotech and medtech and this kind of stuff um, and one of the things that he said was he said look you know i love what they're doing but purely from a capitalistic perspective you have this thing like you touched on right these fds the fda needs to approve it and it takes so long to mm. get to markets and then you got to patent the thing and then your roi is really only as long as you have that patent the moment the patent falls it becomes like i don't know right. falls uh, then suddenly it like everything changes and all the money goes somewhere else yeah. so so he was saying like you know because of that, because of the system that these startups live within, he he, he chooses not to. That's just him. Yeah. So I'm fair. I'm curious to to get your view. Like, how hard is it like to raise funding for a startup like yours? Well, it's difficult. I mean, so um, so right now, as we speak, because of what's happening on a microeconomic level, with you know the inflation, with uh, the Ukraine Russia conflict, uh, what's happening in the UK. I mean, you know. The economy is not in a great place. I, in my personal opinion, the world is not in a great place right now. But that's a, that's a separate discussion. But it does have an impact on financing, financing also for biotech, not just for our industry, but no doubt for many other industries as well. So you have healthcare-dedicated funds that really like the idea that we're trying to solve cancer. Uh, and they like to invest in that and help these companies, you know, get uh, founded and funded and, and and help them along the way because it's a very dollar intensive business, right? I mean, so, you know, as a small biotech company like us, you know, dealing with therapeutics, developing therapeutic products for cancer, you know, you need hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars over that timeline in order to bring a product to an FDA approval. It does. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. Clinical trials. Are very expensive, 
as an example. So the initial work what you do in the lab and in, in animal models is expensive, but nothing compared to being in clinical trials. That's just very expensive. Mm. So, um, so what you do is basically you focus on venture capital funds that have an interest in being involved in life sciences and biotech in particular, and then in particular in therapeutics. As you said, your investors you spoke with, you know, I'm not surprised. There are investors said, look, developing a therapeutic, it takes you about seven or eight years to get a product approved. That, and it takes so much money. So I have to wait so long to get a return on my investment, whether I invested earlier on or even in your series A's and B's. And that's not what we want to do with our fund, right? Our fund has a shorter outlook. So a lot of people say, well, I can, you know, I can invest in a in Apple and Google and see more products approved in eight years than I can have with one in biotech. I mean, that's just, but it's a different type of thing. I mean, mm. you know, um, look, Apple may come out with a new version of iPhone every year or every other year. It's difficult for us. It's just a different process. Um, because you need to realize if you purely look at the funnel that we go to, if you take 10,000 chemical compounds, compounds manufactured in a lab, ultimately only two of those make it to the market. Mm. So it's a very tough process. So the funneling is really steep, you know, and then and ultimately it really bears it down to being one or two products make it to the market out of those 10,000 compounds that you synthesized in the lab, right? The chemist. Mm. So it's, it's just tough, right? Because at the end of the day, the role of the FDA is to protect the public, you know, from a safety concern, right? I mean, so therefore they're very, um, you know, it's amazing what all the things that you have to do as a company sponsoring a product development like this. Um, and so there are very difficult and tough regulatory, you know, requirements, but they're understandable because the FDA's role is to protect the American public from undo, you know, we all, you know, um, we all know in the past about some of the disastrous things that happened with certain products that were allowed to market and had to be pulled because of, you know, life-threatening and even deaths associated with a certain product. So that's the role the FDA has, and FDA takes that really, really serious, and they should. Mm. Uh, by the way, while you were chatting, I actually pulled up the stats about how much venture capital is going into the, the space, um, and turns out more capital than ever <laughs> it's gone into that true. space despite yeah. despite it all right because i think the final the number here is this is on uh, svb.com record 86 billion dollars in venture funding for healthcare yeah. companies uh in the last well in 2021 2022 uh that number is it's actually increasing and then also the average um uh, funding uh you know raise is also it's the highest it's ever been in history yeah, correct Correct. So there's a lot of money going into um, into the space. So having said that, Paul, and, and you know, we've tabled a lot of context here. As a CEO, like how do you decide, you know, for a company such as yours, like how much to raise to mm -hmm. achieve an, an outcome? You know what I mean? Because right. like, like how do you resolve that? Well, so you look at the programs that you like to run right in the next say three or four years, and how much is that going to take? So you 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 know you develop with your finance team a budget uh, based on the team that you have and and the costs associated with these various programs. Let's take an example. If you say, look, in the next four years, I want to bring four products into the clinic, right into clinical trials, um, and it's going to cost me a hundred million dollars to do that then say, okay, can we find a group of investors, a syndicate that's willing to put that money up, knowing that 
in terms of, you know, the, the value of the company increases substantially over that four years time, because now you're suddenly bringing four products into the clinic, which is a huge value gainer, so to say, a value reflection for the company. And thus also looking at thinking about a potential exit for VCs, whether that's going public, whether that's being acquired by a big pharma company, because at the end of the day, biotech, we're the supplier of the pipeline for a lot of the big pharmas, right? So if that is a perfect exit, and then if, if VC can think, okay, look, if that happens and the value goes up and a company buys the company, you know, for a big amount of money, um, you know, I can get a 10 times return on my investment. Mm. But the way it is now, if you think about it, if you think about the t- if, if a VC would invest in 10 different companies, I think out of those 10, three might make it into a nice exit, whether an IPO or an M&A. Seven fall by the wayside. They still make money on those three compared to losing the investment on the seven, right? Mm. So that's the reason why, you know, and, and as you said, what's happened in the last few years that the big VC funds make fewer investment, but they make bigger investment per company because they realize how dollar intensive it has become. Mm. And um, how caught up should a founder be on valuation in the current markets? Well, it's tough, right? I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, obviously you, you're coming, we're tr- trying to raise a Series B right now. So we're coming out of our Series A with a post-money value. Mm-hmm. And then obviously everybody hopes always that you have a nice step up before as a pre-money to your Series B. But given the current difficult financing environment, and VCs are far more um, pushing back on, on, on valuation. So you know you might be in a situation where you get a mole as only a small step up, or potentially even you know a down round because people push you down because they say, well, um, you know this is the way it is, and I'm willing to put the money in, but only at this value, and you know mm. take it or leave it type thing. Mm, exactly. So um, very quickly, your team. Uh, you've got an amazing team. Um, how did you attract them? <laughs> well, that's business. a good point. So, look, obviously, when I started, as I said, we I had there were two employees. One was a scientist, the other one was a process development uh, scientist. They're great people. They're still in the company. Um, so, you know, I told the original board that hired me to come in in January 2018. I said, you know, I told them, I said, look, I want to hire the best people I can find in cell therapy. I don't care where people live. But, you know, I, I, I need to hit the ground running because it's a very hot area and I don't want to miss out on this window to try to raise money and find great people. So that's what I did. Um, so we start adding more scientists in Hamilton, Ontario. And we have we moved it. We moved the two scientists out of Johnson's academic lab into a separate, you know, standalone, beautiful building that just opened up. That was, we were lucky at that. And then we keep growing there. So now we have like 34 people there or so. And then in the U.S., I hired people from I've I identified, you know, um, you know, great people that have a lot of experience doing this kind of product development that we're doing. And so I have people now from San Diego to Boston, from Seattle to Florida, you know, and and it's working well. So we started to do social distancing, Matt, before it became an issue because of the pandemic. We're already doing it, you know, and mm-hmm. it works because. Everybody knows what needs to get done. Everybody can work effectively also from home, sitting behind a computer, right? I mean, last year, because of the pandemic, people raised $200 million in IPO sitting behind their computer at home instead of doing the roadshows and trying to go crazy around the country and meeting with people. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I've done that myself once, and that's a crazy thing. 
But now it's it's people are more and more relaxed. We're now back into the idea that we, of course, we have a corporate headquarters in Austin. We have about 11 people in Austin, 12. So now we're back in the office on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and the other days people can work from home. Um, it does help. Look, I think it's fun to be together with team members. I mean, it, it gives a bit of a spirit of, you know, doing things together. Um, so that that I like that personally. Other people are fine just being remote. I understand that too. Um, and now it's it's more, fle- you know, you need to be flexible to attract the talent, right? Hmm. And I think it's not about hiring people. It's hiring talent, right? We need people hmm. that can make an impact on your growth and success in the coming years. Um, yeah, just to stay with this, um, I had uh, David um, Shanthal on, on the show. He's a former VC. He's now a director of uh, entrepreneurship at Kellogg University, basically, you know, to teach his kids about how to, how to build and scale businesses. Um, and this whole thing about, you know, distributed workforces and, you know, how do you scale culture when everyone's right. sitting sitting at home, you know. Um, and he shared an interesting story. His bro- He's like one of three brothers and they're all like doctorates or PhD people, <laughs> talents. Um, and his brother actually studied how religion was scaled. Mm-hmm. Um, and because like if you want a reference – how the hell did you scale culture of Christianity, for instance, or Judaism? Um, and one of the key things is actually um, a, a ritual. So you go to church on a Sunday, so it's a ritual. And over time, many thousands of years, that's how you scale uh, culture in a distributed way. And it was really interesting for me because like, people, like a lot of CEOs and startup founders are thinking about this, like how do I scale culture and talent and like there's more jobs than there are people and this is tough for me and how do I attract and, t- and blah, blah, blah. Um, and so I'm curious how, from your perspective, like how do you see, because obviously you're going to become like a really big company at some points and many people, mm-hmm. many locations. So um, how do you see, you, you know, you as Paul Amherst, the CEO, like scaling culture, you know what I mean? Like to, to solve this this problem that you guys are on a mission to solve. Well, it's it's a, it's a great challenge, Matt. I can tell you that. Look, um, what I've noticed over the years is that, um, and I tell people when I interview them, right, uh, for for a job, mostly they go to they meet with, you know, the, the of course they are direct managers and other people in the team, and then oftentimes I'm the last one just to feel if the person I think the person would fit with the current culture that we have, right? So, and I said, look, I I'm the CEO, uh, but I'm Paul. I'm a member of the team. I, I'm a big believer in teamwork. I think that is so critical because the sum is truly more than you know the, the individual parts together. And um, and also I said, look, if there's something that I absolutely hate is micromanagement. I hate being micromanaged myself. I, I, it happened to me, and I hate micromanaging other people because I can ask you, Matt, to do something. But I'm not going to call you three times a day, Matt. Have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? Because it drives you nuts. It drives me crazy, right? And it is so counterproductive. So I hire people based on what they bring into the organization, based on their skills. And then I trust them. I give them and say, okay, I want you to do this, right? And you are you're responsible for this. The only thing, and people love it because people are allowed to work independently with their teams to get things done. Is that the only thing that I don't want to see in return is I don't like the idea that people try to, they do something, they're making a mistake, an error, that all happens, we're human, and they try to shove it under the rug and hopefully nobody notices. Well, that doesn't work in a small company. I mean, you know, so that's the only thing I ask. People need to own up. You need to own up to your mistakes. 
right? And because then if there is a mistake made as a team, we can decide how we're going to solve this. I mean, and, and that's okay. I mean, because anybody, I can make a mistake. Anybody can make a mistake, right? So I think that's the culture. And I know that um, my finance guy always said, Paul runs the lowest ego companies I've ever worked for, you know, because I'm just, you know, it's not about me. This is about the company. This is about trying to do something for patients dealing with cancer. And that's the most important thing. And I, the other thing that I, it's, it's no, so you, how do you, so you try to convey that kind of culture within your organization. Of course, my management team knows it. They are using the same kind of approach with their management teams, you know, the various functions. Um, and, you know, it, it takes time, especially we hiring a lot of young new scientists or are new to biotech to come straight out of academia after a master's or a PhD, whatever it is. And they need to get used to this different corporate environment and, you know, so if I go to Hamilton to Canada, I finally could do it again after two years, not allowed to travel to Canada, but I finally did. And it was great to meet these people in person. Yeah, I met them by Zoom every other week, but that's a different way of meeting. I still think that the face-to-face, not just by Zoom, but being present in the same room at the same table chatting with people mm. is a huge benefit. And people underestimate that sometimes. So, um, and I can tell you, I mean, I, I, I was a whole week in Hamilton and twice on Tuesdays and Thursday, I took a random group of employees out to lunch, just me and them, you know. And they were utterly surprised that I said, guys, I don't want to work, talk about work. I want to talk about who you are, about your family. How is the life in Hamilton? How is the commute to work every day? I mean, is it difficult? I mean, all these things. And they looked at me, he's like, oh, he's a regular guy. I said, yes, I am, right? It's just, I'm. It, you see what you get, right? And that's it. I mean, um, and... You know, because at the end of the day, I appreciate you as, as an individual and with your families. I mean, my previous company was all in the office type thing altogether. And I love to walk around the cubicles and say, hey, how was your son's soccer match last weekend? Because that was important for him and his son, right? I mean, it's not it's not about only about the work thing, right? Mm-hmm. And if you can create a culture like that, you can get so much done with a relatively small number of people. And our board of directors always say they're so impressed, Paul, with what you and your team are able to achieve. You know, we have, a you know, four board meetings a year, right? So every quarter, and they say, it's astonishing. The amount of data that you generate with your team and whatever, it's just amazing. And I said, well, apparently we found a nice way of doing it. People like to work for me, with me. I like to work with people. And I don't mind, you know, rolling up the sleeves and digging myself if need be, right? Um, so mm. I think that's the kind of culture. And the other thing, by the way, regarding culture, we have 73 people. I think we have 16 countries represented on that team. Hmm. That in itself is interesting, too, because that brings in all kinds of different cultures, right? And um, look, growing up as a Dutchman, you know, we are, we get a lot of foreign languages in school. Why? Because all the countries around us, you know, speak a different language, right? So uh, I think that's how the Dutch became great traders because we learned our languages, so to say. And the same thing, I, I want to learn from somebody who comes out of Ethiopia, as an example, right? I mean, they bring other things to the table, but it's recipes, as an example, simple recipes. I mean, it starts simple, but I think the whole concept of how you look at the world, at people, at the community, Every country, I think, has its own culture of dealing with this. And I think you can learn enough from that. Mm. Yeah. And this, I mean, the American dream is built on this idea, isn't it? Of like having exactly. people from different backgrounds. Yeah. And yeah. So um, three things, and then we'll wrap up, Paul. So one, you're in Austin. Austin, lots of buzz around um, 
Austin, as my wife yeah. always corrects me. <laughs> um, but uh, lots of investment going there. Elon's there. Tesla's there. Joe Rogan's there. Tim Ferriss is there. It seems like oh. the whole world is now moving to Austin and it's the new Silicon Valley. Um, would you say that that's true, number one? And number two, what role have you found that Austin as a ecosystem has contributed to your ability to scale? So, so, um, so first off, it is true. Um, I think that the world of high tech has exploded here. Um, of course, you know, Dell started, you know, Dell computers here. He was, uh, he was in, you know, University of Texas in his dorm room. We started Dell. And of course, that grew into a big thing. Also, the University of Texas has the great computer science program as well, right? So it helps also with creating and, and you know, local talent. The other thing is, um, you know, having no state income tax is a big plus. So tax incentives for companies has been huge. For employees is nice because, as they call it now, Silicon Hills instead of Silicon Valley here in Austin. You know, the hill country is is fun. It's and it's exciting. I mean, there's yeah. like massive number of wineries. There is barbecue pits everywhere. I mean, there's live music capital of the world. You know, it attracts young people who want to be here. Right. And also people who a lot of people move from California here because they say California is just too expensive to live. I like Austin has the same kind of vibe as the San Francisco as an example. You know, uh, it is a vibrant. I mean, every weekend there is a marathon or a triathlon or whatever. I mean, going on. It's just a young, vibrant city. And it's just um, the funny thing is, you know, they have this great quote. Um, you know, about, about, you know, Texas, did you want to, you know, want to be here and, um, you know, and basically stay cool type thing, you know, and, and now people say, you know, come to Texas, you know, and then it says a little sign underneath that says, please don't stay because the growth has been, you know, I mean, exponential. I mean, it's just been ridiculous, but it is an environment that of course it's, it's, you know, a lot of people are concerned about the political direction of Texas um, being a red state, um, although it's turning more purple as it is, but um, as they always say, Austin is a blueberry in a big bowl of tomato soup. You know, it is extremely democratic, a liberal city, um, and it's just fun. You know, it's just a fun city. Mm. So, just uh, I brought up um, the University of uh, Texas's website. So, since two thousand eight, they've it, the university alone has seven hundred and eighty six U.S. and international patents. Uh, and oh, yeah. total yeah. total research is six hundred and fifty million dollars. Like that's a big deal, dude. <laughs> yes, right. You know, it's a really big yeah. deal. Yeah. So uh, also for us on the on the science side, they, they have a great molecular science program. So they're turning out really nice. You know, from BS to MS to PhDs uh, who want to stay local because all these twenty year olds they don't want to leave Austin after they graduate. They like to stay because it's such a cool hip city. You know. Mm, mm. Um, so and that's also good for the local environment, of course, to grow it. Um, you know, our R&D labs are in Hamilton, Ontario. That's a different thing. But um, so, but I, I know in my previous company, we hired people locally and they were awesome, you know, great talent. Um, so, and that's how you build an ecosystem is based trying to keep that talent here. Mm -hmm. We'll see how long that lasts. Bring on, make it Denver. Make it Denver. Come on, bring, bring your skills here, people. Um, so <laughs> so uh, two questions, Paul, and then we'll wrap up. Sure. What's your what's your vision here? Like, what is the you know end state contribution you hope to make as a team 
Yeah, so I hope as a team that we can bring several of these cell therapy companies actually to approval and onto the market that addresses high amount needs in key cancer types, whether it's bringing breast or gastric or lung cancer, pancreatic cancer. That would be absolutely fantastic. I mean, you know, and, and, and look, people ask me, Paul, do you want to grow the company and, and start marketing the products yourself? I said, look, I don't mind doing that. But the reality, as I said earlier, we are, you know, the farm school for, you know, for pharma, right? We bring in the new pipeline products for pharma. So if we get to a point where a pharma company says, look, you have very interesting products and we like to acquire you, right? If it's good for the insiders, for the shareholders, then by all means, we should seriously consider that. Um, but do I mind going, you know, start marketing and commercial stuff? No, not at all. I mean, you know, we can further expand the company and get great marketing and salespeople involved. I mean, so uh, I'm not adverse to that either, but I think the reality is such that a lot of biotech companies are being acquired by pharma and it could be really good well for employees and for shareholders and anybody, right? Mm. Yeah, I, I 100% in your camp. Go, go, go do it. Like, because if you can, you know, get the investments and the customers and the relationships and the strategic partnerships and they take your IP and like everybody wins and you can get there faster, like go and do that. Right. You know. Um, so, Paul, last question. Why, sure. do you, why do you do what you do? Like what, you know, gets you out of bed in the morning? Um, well, I have three you know, adult, you know, daughters, married, um, two have kids already. And also when they were in high school, I always told them the most important thing your job is to wake up and have fun to jump out of bed and go to work. I mean, that is absolutely critical. And I think for anybody who has a job, right? Because, you know, look, we spent eight, 10, 12 hours a day in the office, whether you sit behind your desk and your laptop or you're in the office, the actual office building, at the end of the day, it's a hell of a lot of time, you know, out of your day that you spend on work. So I'd rather be doing something that is fun. And also at the end of the day, trying to to find something to treat cancer, what better is there, right? I mean, look, I've been involved now in product development in pharma biotech for 33 years. I've done a lot of different therapeutic area, but to work on cancer, man, that is really something that makes me get out of bed and go to work. Yeah. I agree um, and couldn't agree with you more. I think we need more people like you, more more people, more talent, you know, focused on this. I've learned a lot. Uh, I'm super encouraged from, from the conversation today, Paul, and, you know, what you guys are solving is a real, real, real problem. No, you're not. welcome. It was great. Great to chat. Um, and so thank you. Really excited to see where you're going to go. Um, and thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We'll see you all again soon. Ciao. Okay, great. Okay. Bye, Matt. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients haiku went from a two percent share of voice globally to an 11 percent share of voice globally in only seven days if you'd like more information head on over to showworksmedia.com for more that is showworks with an x.com